0: You can open to Luke chapter 18 this morning. We'll be in verses 1 through 8 there. In 2018, Isabella Chow was a student at a prominent academic institution in our country. She was involved in student leadership as a member of the student senate in her university. And when it came to this point in her leadership that she was unable to sign this declaration that the Senate was seeking to pass there, this resolution, she was unable to sign it because it conflicted with her Christian faith, she immediately began to receive intense backlash from her fellow students and even uh, newspapers around the country. She was compared in the school paper to a KKK leader because of her bigoted views Every extracurricular activity that she was involved with kicked her out. Um, Newspaper articles were ran against her and her crime, believing that in the beginning God created man and woman. The question is, is there hope for Isabella Chow in a situation like this? Or is there hope for you if you ever find yourself facing the ostracization or or, uh, the persecution of this world? We do indeed live in a hostile world. We have to be honest with ourselves this morning, though, and admit that many Christians all over this world today are facing greater threats, even than this university student, greater threats than, than we may face this morning after we walk out of church, but we ought to be prepared and we ought to think about this idea of injustice and persecution. So our passage this morning provides hope for all Christians. And it's actually rooted in the vindication of God's people at the return of Christ. God's Word points us forward this morning Not to, uh, again, we were sort of harping on this last week, but not to satisfy our curiosity about the end, but to strengthen our resolve. To strengthen our resolve. One commentator said it so well. He said, it is part of the purpose of biblical eschatology to allow the ultimate vision to brighten the intermediate dark days. So part of the role of eschatology. It is to give the ultimate vision of the end to sort of brighten these dark days that we walk through now. And that's what our text does. It gives us that ultimate vision of the end, of the return of Christ, and it brightens these dark days, encouraging us to persevere in our trust and faith in Christ and to persevere in prayer as we look forward to this final vindication. So... God does it, I think, just makes it really clear for us. There's two points this morning. How do we live in this intervening period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ? That was all set up for us at the end of Luke chapter 17. Well, what do we do? Well, first, we must pray continually. We must pray continually. Verse 1 should come with a, a little bracket that says, spoiler alert. Right, Because Luke totally shows his cards here as he, he tells us the purpose of the parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose hearts. So he just tells us what, what it's going to be about. And this is, this is a dream for us who, who read our Bibles, and, and especially as somebody who's going to preach the Bibles, man, thank you, Lord, that it's just that clear. It's right in front of us that you have made it that obvious to us what we're actually meant to understand and pull out of this text. And it actually provides us with our structure this morning. We ought always to pray, and we ought not to lose hearts. And so we ought to think about verse 1 for a minute before we dive into the parable. That word odd, it, it carries with it this, a stronger connotation than you should, you should or you should think about doing this. The, the idea is that this is something that is necessary. And the two necessary things for us this morning are that we ought always to pray and we ought not to lose heart. See, Luke 18 I, I, is tied in with uh, the, the end of chapter 17. The context is still these events surrounding the return of Christ, or as Jesus called them in chapter 17, the days of the Son of Man. That was the topic of chapter 17. I'm I'm arguing that it continues into chapter 18. We learned last week that Jesus will return physically to this earth and rule and reign as He consummates the kingdom of God. And this will be a time of judgment for those who have rejected Christ this will be a time of vindication for God's people. Those who are in Christ are actually spared any form of judgment or wrath from God because they're not destined for wrath, but for salvation. And we learn that we have to long for this. We have to long for this, that we will be in Christ's glorious presence forever. But we face the present reality of living in between the first coming of christ and the second coming of christ and how do we do that and that's the burden of luke 18 at least verses 1 through 8. how do we do that well it's necessary to pray always the idea is that prayer is something that we return to with regularity it's obviously not pray every second of every day that's impossible but it's that prayer should be a defining feature of every follower of Christ every day throughout the day. It should be our first impulse when something difficult or, or in our context, persecution or, or temptation arises. Our first impulse should be to turn to the Lord in prayer. And you know, the reality is we can ask God to, to do this in us, right? Sometimes we think, I've got to sort of create this in myself and then the lord will be pleased with me and i'll be a man of prayer now we have to we have to just ask the lord to produce this in us give give me that impulse to turn to you throughout the day if you read the psalms you see how often they're saying lord incline my heart back to your word bend me back to where i need to be open my eyes Unite my heart within me to fear your name. The psalmists, over and over and over again, they are perfectly fine asking the Lord, do in me what, what you're asking me to do. Create this in me. So we ought to be those who are continually given to prayer. And we see that developed in our parable this morning. So let's take a look at the the parable that Jesus tells here, and we'll see how does Jesus kind of tease us out. Why would Luke begin verse 1 by saying the parable is about continually praying? The parable begins there in verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. In this Story that Jesus is developing. He's probably talking about some kind of uh, a Jewish leader, a Jewish judge. If you read the end of Jesus' life and if you read in the book of Acts, Rome actually gave Jewish judges some authority there to sort of work out, you know, you see in Acts, like work out your own problems. Why, Why are we having to deal with this? And so that's probably what Jesus is talking about. Now, when it involved capital punishment, the Roman government's like, we want our hand in that. And this particular judge, whether he's Jewish or Roman, it doesn't really matter. But this particular judge was not a good man. The, the text says he did not respect people. And I know we sometimes use that positively, right? God is no respecter of persons, meaning he, he treats people the same. But this is a negative thing. He's not a, he does not respect people and that he has no regard for others. He's certainly not going to have regard for somebody like a widow who has no social pull, no authority. And of course, this lack of concern for his neighbor, this lack of respect for others, this lack of love and care for somebody like a widow, it's rooted in the fact that he does not fear God. He does not fear God. He has no holy reverence and, and awe before God that would lead him to submit to God and to walk in justice and to treat people the way he ought to treat people, especially as a man in authority. He has no concern for God and therefore no concern for God's will. In essence, this man, is, this judge, is the exact opposite of what God expected a judge to be in Israel. Jehoshaphat said to the, of the judges in Israel, in 2 Chronicles, he said to the judges, consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. That's what this judge in Luke doesn't have. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. What happens when there's, there's fear of the Lord on a judge? For there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality in taking bribes. So this guy is is wicked. He's an evil judge. He's an unrighteous judge. Jesus calls him that towards the end of our text this morning. And it is to this, this judge that a widow comes and, and seeks for him to act on her behalf that she might actually have justice. She has to lean on this wicked ruler if she ever hopes to receive justice. We're not told in the parable what her cause is, um, but we do, we, we do know this, that everyone that would be listening to Jesus' parable would understand the plight of a widow in ancient Israel. So we should tease that out for just a minute. You you. you All you have to do is read, if you read the Bible in a year and you're trying to make that your goal, you'll you'll shortly be, and you start in Genesis and you make the exodus, you will shortly be in these sections of scripture where you see God's concern and care for people like widows. When you read your Old Testament, you see God's command of protection for widows and any other vulnerable member of society, like an orphan or a foreigner. Why? Because they were easy to take advantage of. They didn't have a lot of power or pull. And so what we have in this parable is a recipe for disaster. You have a helpless widow who who many people, including this judge, will want to take advantage of, and whoever her adversary is, her opponent is, is trying to take advantage of her, and you've got a judge who doesn't care about that. That's a recipe for disaster. A widow who needs someone to act on her behalf, and a judge who could care less about this for widow but this lady she's she's actually persistent you see that in the middle of verse three that she just kept coming there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying give me justice against my adversary and day after day she keeps coming before this judge and coming before this judge and coming before this judge and day after day the judge lives up to his reputation as someone who doesn't fear God and doesn't care about people You see, he even recognizes his own callousness in in verse 4. He admits that he doesn't fear God or respect people. He says that to himself. I don't care about the fear of God or, or respect people. So as this parable develops, this sort of change in his action towards the widow is not the result, actually, of this judge's change of heart. This isn't... A Hallmark movie, where some mean guy gets broken down by some little nice child, and all of a sudden becomes a nice person. There's a, you know, in the in the movie, there's a change in inner disposition that results in a change of action. Well, that's not the case actually here. The judge actually acts in self-interest. It is because the widow keeps bothering him that he finally relents. We see that there in verse 5, actually. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She wore him down. She wore him down to the point where the judge says, you know what, it's just easier for me to give in to this lady than to keep dealing with her. I'm so tired of her coming before me. It's funny that phrase, uh, beat me down, is actually, I mean, it's typically like to receive an actual physical beating or even to receive a black eye. Of course, he's not afraid of the widow fighting him, but as she comes day after day after day, emotionally, she just sort of wears him out, beats him down. He becomes exhausted by her continual coming before him, pleading for Justice. Now, as we think about how Luke introduced the text, specifically saying we ought always to pray, we want to notice a couple things about the parable. First, what the widow is asking for matters in terms of our context. What the widow is asking for matters to the point that Jesus is driving at, to the point that Jesus is making. What is she seeking? She is seeking justice. She is helpless, and so she keeps turning to the only one that can help her, and her cry is for justice. You see, sometimes this text is sort of just taken out. I think it's kind of lifted out. The parable's sort of scrubbed of, of, of that word, justice. And, and we actually just sort of talk about prayer. You ought to pray a lot, pray more. I don't care how much you're praying, pray more. Well, this, this text actually focuses on the, the, the continual content of her cry for justice. And we'll see why in a minute. But it wouldn't be fair to take this text and to rip it out of its context and then to just say, you know, pray more, and then we'll call it quits. The emphasis falls on this continual cry for her to be vindicated. In other words, in in light of the context, a continual cry for the vindication that God's people will experience when Christ returns, when He returns to rescue His church and to judge the world. So the idea is continually cry for the return of Christ, that He might judge the wicked, that He might establish His kingdom. In light of this injustice that God's people oftentimes face, the injustice that we started our text with, the injustice of persecution. So the teenager who is ridiculed online or at school for being on the wrong side of history because she wants to cling to the Bible, Or the employee who faces pressure to celebrate things the Bible identifies as sinful. Or the grandparent who is ridiculed by grandchildren for still clinging to that ancient book. Well, that person, God's people, can turn to God and cry for justice and find hope in Him. Notice, also, that the, the emphasis falls not only on what she's asking, but the persistence with which she asks. You know, we've made this pretty clear as we told the parable, but it was by her continual coming, the fact that she kept bothering the judge that eventually she received justice. And this is, you know, we'll nuance this in a minute, but this persists, this persistence is something that we should seek to do ourselves. We ought always to pray, Luke said in, in verse 1. So we ought always to come before the Lord and cry out to Him and ask for justice to be done and plead with Him to return or to send Jesus to return. You know, maybe we, we sort of admitted earlier that South Dakota is not the heart of Christian persecution at this point. Now, it's here, right? I'm not, I'm not making fun or making light of those of you who have faced some of that, and I know some of you in this room have faced some of this social pressure that Peter in First Peter is perfectly fine calling persecution. But for many of us, maybe maybe we can zoom out a bit, be a little less individualistic, and pray for those around us, or in our world, or in the body of Christ who are suffering injustice or who are suffering persecution. Many Christians, as we said in the beginning, on other continents are are facing greater threats than we face at the moment because of their faith in Christ. We can pray for them. We should pray for them. Whether it's in Nigeria or Afghanistan or India or China or Colombia, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing these threats, who are facing the suffering And we can join with them as those who are in the body of Christ and plead for them that they might endure in their faith in light of persecution. When one part of the body hurts, you feel it in the entire body and we cry out to God for justice for our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we have not yet met. So we see in in the first part of this text that these These two truths sit in tension together. One truth, that that God will hear the cries of His people, the call for justice. The second, though, is the obvious implication from Jesus' words and the telling of the parable, that God's people might find prayer difficult, and so they need admonishment. They need to be told that you ought always to pray. So God will hear us, but also this will be a struggle for God's people. The challenge of Christ, the command of Christ, the admonition of Christ actually should humble us. It's a caution to us. It's a warning that, that, that you may be tempted to grow weary and to grow discouraged and to stop praying. There's an odd sense of comfort in that. Uh, for me, that, that that Jesus knows we actually need admonishment in this area. Jesus knows that we need encouragement in the area of prayer. Jesus' instruction is for real people in real times of difficulty who will be tempted to, to leave this, this cry for justice, to forget the coming of Christ, and to grow discouraged, and to grow cold. And that is why Jesus not only talks about prayer, but he ties it in with what we might call perseverance, clinging to the faith. We ought always to pray, and secondly, and not lose heart. And not lose heart. So point number two this morning, as we await the days of the Son of Man, we must persevere. We saw that in, in verse one, as Luke really laid it out there, for us, we must not lose hearts. The idea is we, we must not grow weary. The trials and pressures and persecutions associated w- with living in the in-between, they can be immense. And it is possible for someone to become discouraged and weary and downtrodden and lose faith and even, for some, give up following christ now i i I know that gets into systematic theology and we would we would certainly affirm that we are secure in christ anybody who's placed their faith in christ is secure but what does god use to to prompt the faith of his people whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world he's sealed with the holy spirit he will he will persevere He uses the word of God and and warnings like we find in Luke chapter 18 to accomplish this in his people. So we should be humble enough and say, Oh, oh, Lord, keep me from this. Keep me from growing so discouraged that I give up on prayer and I, I put my heart in danger. I wonder if you've known someone who you consider to be on fire for the Lord. You know, whatever that means. But end up walking away from the faith. You know, I'm amazed as I, as I think back on our time in, in student ministry when I was a youth pastor for a long time, and you know, 10 years ago, if you gave me a lineup of, of all the kids that were in our student ministry and said, all right, now put the ones over here that you think are going to be walking with the Lord in 10 years, and put the ones over here that you think are going to walk away from the Lord in the next 10 years, man, I would have been way off. I would have been... Way off Because there were students that seemed like they loved the church, they loved the Word of God, they loved the Bible, and they walked away. And others who we were concerned about, we wondered about, we wondered if they knew the Lord, we wondered if they were walking with the Lord, the, the Lord has grown them and sanctified them and persevered them in the faith. The point of t- saying any of that is that we should, we should take these warnings seriously. Discouragement leading to apathy is a, a real danger To us. Of course, these two ideas, they're they're related, right? Prayer and perseverance, they're related. Just because they're two separate points of the sermon doesn't mean they're just completely disjointed here, right? Prayer sustains our perseverance, and a lack of prayer should be alarm bells going off on us that our faith is waning and struggling. We need to repent and turn to the Lord. And what Jesus does is he actually roots our encouragement to keep praying and to keep hold of Christ, keep hold of the faith in the faithfulness of God himself. He roots it in God's faithfulness. You see, maybe as we walk through that parable, you wondered why God would pick a wicked judge to make his point. You know, I wrestled with that when I was a new believer. Like, what's going on here? It's. Why would Jesus compare himself to that? This is an unrighteous judge. Jesus calls him an unrighteous judge in verse 6. But then he goes on to say, now listen to what the judge, listen to what the unjust, the unrighteous judge says. You see, what, what, what Jesus is willing to do in his parable is say, there's, there's one thing that I want you to see about this judge, and it's that he can, he can provide justice. But then there's this huge contrast. We, you might call it like a lesser, a lesser to the greater contrast where Jesus is actually uh, pointing to the ways that God is not like this judge. In other words, if a wicked judge would hear this persistent widow who comes and comes and comes, how much more will God give justice to his elect? You see, the beauty and the glory of the passage is that God is not like this judge. There's only one way He's like the judge. He can bring justice. But the beauty of the passage is all the ways He is greater than this judge. He is the righteous one who loves to give justice. You see, the widow could not trust the judge's character. All she had at her disposal was to bother him and bother him and bother him. That's all she had. Maybe I can just gain his attention and wear him out. But we can trust God's character. We can rely on His faithfulness and believe that He will fulfill all of His promises exactly because He's not like this guy. We're not dealing with someone who is crooked and apathetic, who doesn't respect or have regard for people. When we remember that, when we think of God correctly, we can be faithful and persistent and continually return back to the Lord. In prayer, yes, and in persevering faith. And that's really the point. That we should keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back, not because the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Not because, oh, if I can get enough people to bombard God's ear, maybe I can bend my will, His will to mine and kind of get my way. It's that God is faithful. And we ought to keep coming to Him because He hears us. And He acts on behalf of the elect. He will act for those who have been treated unjustly. He will act for those who are crying out day and night and who are not ceasing in prayer. There's another, I think, contrast in the text, or a comparison contrast, I guess you could say. We are, we are like the widow in, in, in one way. We are like the widow in that we are completely helpless and we are dependent on God to act on our behalf. Tom Schreiner says, Prayer is fundamentally a confession that strength comes from the Lord. What are we doing when we continually turn to Him in a day, when we we go to Him again and again and again? We're demonstrating that we recognize our own helplessness. Prayer is fundamentally a confession that strength comes from the Lord, that disciples cannot make it on their own, that they need grace every day. Every day. So we should be humbled by this text and reminded that, yes, indeed, and we, we willingly admit our help, my help, comes from the Lord. But Jesus also reminds us that we are, we are unlike the widow in one sense. The widow was despised, despised by this judge. He did not care about her. He looked down on her, let her adversary take advantage of her, prey on her weakness, But what does Jesus call us there in verse 7? The elect. God will act on behalf of the elect. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Of course He will. Of course He will. God will not forsake those whom He chose before the foundation of the world. God will not forsake those whom He redeemed through the work of Christ. God will not forsake those whom He has sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. Will not God give justice? Yes. Yes, He will. He is the one who knows what His elect children need before they even ask. So don't grow weary. Don't grow weary, brothers and sisters, because God will and does and has and will forever keep His Word. And He will give justice. He will give justice to His elect. God will vindicate His people. This truth, again, I've sort of been saying this in different ways, but this truth hasn't been hard for for Christians throughout history to appreciate this idea of vindication. Many have faced persecution, whether it be sort of what they're dealing with in 1 Peter, the social ostracization, uh, the, the, the social pressure, the slander, the maligning, or whether it be the, the physical violent persecution that broke out in Acts 7 and throughout the history of the church. Many throughout church history have longed for the, the day of vindication where God vindicates His people. I was admitting to a friend recently that you know, for the first several years that I, I, I knew Christ, I struggled to, to understand this idea of vindication. You, know, you read Malachi, and, and the Son of righteousness is going to rise, and, and these calves are going to come out, and they're going to step underfoot the ashes of those who have been judged. And you're like, man, I, I don't know that I understand this idea of vindication. And I think it's because I had very little idea of, about being disliked or being attacked for being a Christian. And I think many of us are beginning to see more, more clearly why this idea of vindication has been a source of hope for God's people through all the ages. This brother that I was sharing with was facing some pressure for his Christian faith, being threatened for his Christian faith. And I know some of you, others, know what it is to be mistreated by parents, or by spouses, or by children, or by grandchildren, or by friends, or co-workers, or employers. And it's in these times of injustice where we might be prone to discouragement. I admit that I come to this topic with a sense of humility. I recognize that we are at a time and place in our country, especially in a country that pr- practices religious liberty, that unlike in so many other countries, it's not, not necessarily the pastors who are being pulled out a- and punished and jailed. In fact, a pastor can grow his congregation by being bold here and can grow his reputation by being bold here. So I recognize that some in the pew are facing this on a more daily basis than, than somebody like me who works in the church the time may come where pastors are being hauled away and i pray that you would you would pray for me and the other elders especially those who aren't in the uh, in the world all the time would stand firm but right now it's oftentimes church members especially as jeff pointed out a few weeks ago especially children and teenagers who may be facing some of this pressure who may be facing the injustice of persecution more regularly. So we ought to pray. We ought to pray for one another. One of the simple challenges of this text is this. What do your prayers sound like? What do your prayers sound like? Is it it nothing more than a wish list? And And then when something else you want comes around, you may turn... I wonder if we pray the way Jesus instructs us to pray here or the way Jesus instructed us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the prayer for the coming of the kingdom is a prayer for vindication. It's a prayer for the vindicating work of God. That is the time where Jesus sets the world right side up. He rules and reigns in righteousness. The idea in this passage is that God will judge those who persecute the righteous. And this will be a demonstration. If if you're wondering, what does he keep meaning by vindication? Here's here's what I mean. This, This judgment on those who persecute the righteous will be a demonstration to all those who bore the scorn of this world that they were indeed right to cling to Christ and to cling to the testimony of Christ and to cling to the Word of God. So there's this hope that we have in the text in, in, in spite of this delay. And we see both of those things coming together at the end of our text in verse 7. He's already said, and will not God give justice to his elect? There's our, there's our hope. Who cry to him day and night? Well, there's, there's the delay. We've got to keep doing this. Will he delay long over them? Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them. Speedily. So it's these again these twin truths that Jesus is, is coming soon. He's going to give justice soon. But there's this delay where, from our perspective, it might not feel soon. It might not feel very speed, speedy. It may feel agonizingly long. In fact, and if if we don't if we're not careful to to trust the faithfulness of God, that it might feel like, will God ever answer? You may watch the news or read some story of persecution and think, man, will God ever come? Be reminded that from God's perspective, it's tomorrow. (laughs) It's tomorrow. From God's perspective, the timing is near. Despite what we feel... The timing is near. He will draw near to the afflicted and give justice. You know, God sometimes, I think the idea, will He delay long over them? I think there is a sense in the text in which, yeah, God does actually act in this world to bring about justice prior even to His return. So He does it sometimes in this life. I remember not too long ago, we were, we were praying for pastors in other states who were facing lawsuits you know, for, for meeting as a church. And, and instead of saying, you know what, okay, we prayed for that, what's the next thing we can be mad about? We actually sort of followed what, what was happening and in this, one of the cases we were praying for, the, the courts actually upheld the law, and the state had to pay for all the legal fees that the church was out for coming after this church. And so we praise God. That's a, that's a vindication of God's people in the world today. So God does stuff like that now. But it's not guaranteed, right? If it were God's will, that pastor could have went to jail, and the church could have been shut down, and... Scattered all over. That's not a guarantee, but the justice God brings will, in in the future, is a guarantee. So we can be heartened this morning that God has not forgotten, He has not overlooked His people. It is coming in no time, at least the way God counts time. Right? Remember 2 Peter 3 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we, we understand that it is soon. But in the meantime, we can live as people who are confident that even if we don't see justice in this life, that God will make all things right in His righteous justice. And really, it, it requires this sort of fundamental understanding of the faithfulness and justice of God if we ever hope to do some of the seemingly impossible things that Jesus has called us to do, even in the book of Luke. Luke. If you get struck on one side of your face, off from the other side of your face, how do you do that unless you're convinced about the justice of God? If somebody compels you to go one mile, go with them another mile, how do you do it unless you're convinced of the ultimate justice of God? How do you love your enemies and care for those who persecute you? Or even outside of uh, of the commands of Luke, we think about what we're called to do in the New Testament in terms of not seeking your own revenge, and if it's at all possible with you, live peaceably with all men, overcome evil with good, how in the world? How in the world can we do that unless we can be convinced by the Word of God that it's not up to me to take up my own cause and to seek my own vengeance and to seek my own vindication? We can only do those sort of things insofar that we are confident in God's ability to act justly. Then we're free to say, I don't have to to take this matter up. We're simply freed up at that point to love others, even our enemy, and let God deal with the justice and the vengeance and the vindication that will come. The final part of Verse 8 then returns us back to this idea of of faith and persevering. The focus shifts from God responding to our prayers to whether or not we will remain faithful by trusting trusting in God that he will keep all his promises. Look at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If you're wondering, like, why do you think chapter 18 goes with Chapter 17, it's verse 8. When the Son of Man comes. right? He's maintaining the same theme. In the form of a question, Jesus is challenging those who would hear to keep watch, to remain steadfast and patiently wait. The question is, what, what will God's people be found doing? Will they be praying, hoping, waiting, watching? Or will they grow weary and discouraged and put themselves in danger? You see, believers are are in danger of all kinds of threats from different angles. Satan, this world, the flesh, all desire to lead you astray. We must humbly admit that we are outmatched and of ourselves, our only hope is in God. And so we pray regularly, we remind ourselves of God's justice and His coming kingdom. We watch and we wait. We ask God to sustain us. Again, it may feel like a delay, but rest assured, God is working out His good and perfect timing. The reality is for us this morning that all of the injustice that we've, you know, we've mentioned, I think specifically in this context, we're talking about a level of persecution. But all the injustice that a Christian might face in this life, it pales in comparison to what Jesus faced. Right? In our context in Luke, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. He knows what will befall him. That even though he's the only perfect one, The only one righteous. The only one who has never sinned. Yet he was mocked, slandered, conspired against, spit upon, beaten, and ultimately crucified. Yet when reviled, he didn't revile in return. Yet when he was attacked, he did not curse or threaten. Why? Because he was trusting in God's vindication. He was trusting in God's vindication. He endured the, imbu- the abuse knowing that he would be vindicated by the Father. That though he would suffer at the hands of sinful men, that he would be humiliated and placed on that Roman cross bearing the wrath of God for the sins of those who would confess their sin and turn to Christ. Did all of that knowing that God would vindicate him. He would not be left on that Shameful cross, He would not be left in that cold grave. Jesus was resurrected from the grave, demonstrating His victory over sin and death and Satan. Not only that, but He's given all authority in heaven and on earth and over the earth. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, parading through the streets his defeat over the the spiritual forces of darkness. He's given a name above every name. The name of Jesus at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father vindicates the Son after you endured the abuse of sinful people. And the one who raised Christ is powerful enough to vindicate and he's faithful enough to vindicate his own people. So pray and don't lose heart. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray for humility, that we wouldn't claim persecution when it's not. But Lord, we pray that when we do face those sorts of things, that we would be strengthened in Christ, that we would cry out together, that you would send the Lord Jesus quickly, that he might deliver us from wrath, and that he might judge the world. We, we, we long for that day, Lord. Lord. We anticipate that day. May you persevere us in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.